Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, things are ticking along. It's it's you know starting to heat up as far as uh, skills sessions are getting booked and uh, you know races are, are coming or happening in some cases as well. Mm-hmm. And shockingly, uh, spring has sprung, which means I'm back on the bike. I guess mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a calf issue going on this week, which has actually put me back on the bike. And I have to be honest, a I feel like I completely forgot how to ride a bike because it had been a minute. So. My bike skills, something we're getting into a lot today, uh, are definitely lacking a little bit. Although after the second ride back, I feel a little bit better, uh, a little bit like my legs actually remember how to pedal up hills and whatnot. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, you know, I really do. I always forget how much I love riding until I'm really back on the bike and doing a couple days worth of, of sure. rides. Um, but yeah, it's it's been nice sort of doing something a little bit different for for me anyway cool. and you were covering the perry roubaix over the weekend yeah yeah i mean geez if you want to talk about bike skills uh watching some of the the crashes the near misses um some people probably uh were sh- shrieking at the tv as canadian derek g who was in the breakaway like huge props to him oh my gosh uh he was in the breakaway and then he hit one of the very technical uh, cobble sections and his rear wheel like the tire detonated i don't know any other word for it yeah like i have not seen that majestic of an explosion of a tire so pretty exciting i mean we obviously have to mention action jackson allison jackson oh my gosh. Uh, won the women's race as well so canadian women continuing to be very successful which mm-hmm. is always good they carry us through canadian men <laughs> continuing to be pretty comical but, and but to derek g's like he is uh like you may have not heard of him yet, or maybe you just heard of him yesterday, but he is very fit. I was looking our big, like prize road climb here in town. So it's, you know, I think of it as like a 10 minute climb. He has the, the KOM on it and it is like seven minutes. He took three minutes, I think out of me on a 10 minute, like, I don't It's probably more like a, a you know, maybe nine or eight, but minutes, yeah, <laughs> which is impressive. And like power wise, I don't even want to talk about it. Like so much more, like just a different animal. So impressive, uh, super exciting for our road cycling and track cycling programs, uh, mm-hmm. that that's, that we're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Also, as far as road skills go, you have to shout out Matthew Vanderpool in the last like 5k. There was one final cobbled section where he just had, there were fans swarmed around him. There were bollards all up the sides, like where what it are was bollards? Uh, like, um, Barriers? pylon type oh. barrier pylon oh. type things okay uh, but so like, european heftier yeah uh i can't even yeah there's no real like english equivalent like that's what they were i okay. i don't know uh and anyway they were taking up all of the flat sections you pretty much had to be on the cobbles but there was this moment where he had to veer sort of into into the flat section because there were fans on the road and he uh he just did this like weird little like wild swing toward the bollard and like he was within like a millimeter of hitting it and just ruining this you know winning race and just 
managed to just shift his body. Like it wasn't even that he did like an abrupt thing with the bike. Just the body language was just incredible. So yeah, again, we're going to talk about road skills ad nauseum this episode. And really, if you want to go back, just look at the highlights from Perry Roubaix and it's just incredible. But before we get into that, we have to talk about our new slash returning sponsor, I guess, uh, Inside Tracker. And I'm so excited to have them back on the podcast because this is a service we've been using for years now. For sure. We've used it a lot. Um, certainly handy during the pandemic, but also for a variety of reasons, which I guess we can go through. But yeah, we recommend it. We've been recommending it on the show and even just to clients, you know, not even as a sponsor. So we're, we're happy to have them back, but it's it's a sponsored but not sponsored, I guess, sponsorship. <laughs> 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 yeah, so Inside Tracker, if you've been living under a rock and haven't heard of them yet, they do blood testing. They also do DNA testing. They can sync all of that information with your fitness tracker if you wanted to upload a bunch of data into their app. Uh, and basically, they you know pull all of this information. They do really comprehensive blood panels. They do essential blood panels. Um, and it's just such a great way of getting this snapshot of where your your health is at and sort of catching problems, I think, before they start or even just giving you more information that might help you understand problems you've been having. So for endurance athletes, you know, it's checking things like iron levels and all that jazz, but it also checks, you know, maybe lesser known things like you're checking your vitamin D, you're checking testosterone, uh, you know, uh, blood sugar level, all that stuff kind of mm -hmm. all in one. And I think, you know, the, the recommended, you know, once we just define ourselves as an athlete, like it's multiple times a year, which in Canada is, is hard to get, you know, your doctor to recommend, you know, we're sort of maybe once a year and that's not, you know, a lot of people actually have trouble getting it once a year, which is the recommended for everyone uh, to just get these, this like blood, you know, just make sure everything's ticking along. Okay. Um, you know, it's not a check of everything, but it is sort of recommended. So in Canada, especially it's great. And then for my really busy clients, which is, you know, single moms, this is, you know, executives, this is, you know, people, hard charging athletes, whatever, Literally everybody. everyone, yeah, everyone's into it. So having it, uh, the, the blood draw at home, which in Canada, you do have to do it at home through it inside tracker. Uh, I think you have the option in the States, uh, but it's just such a time savings when you start thinking about it. Yes, you have to pay for it, which in Canada, we all sort of gasp a little bit with our universal, but a, you're getting it done but the cost of going to the doctor's office ours is you know over an hour drive to get to our doctor so it, it's a lot of time out of your day if you can get it done at home you know this is we just usually get it done before breakfast and the person comes early in the day which is just really really nice yeah no it's the most convenient thing and then I like that I can then take the results and stuff to my doctor mm -hmm. and actually show him and have them go through and, you know, see anything that is sort of off. But Inside Tracker also does provide recommendations and you get to choose between whether or not you want supplements included in the recommendations, which I really like that you can toggle that on and off. So sure. you can kind of see like, you know, oh, your magnesium's a little low. You could take a magnesium supplement. Or if you toggle off the supplements, it's okay, here's sort of the, the food and lifestyle things you can do. And the user interface, you know, I guess is free really. Um, and, and as you say, you can upload past blood work. Mm -hmm. So it is nice, you know, just to start tracking out these trends which, you know, even our doctor is really impressed with the, the full color graphs where it sort of shows, you know, your iron, which is going to, you know, day to day, it's going to fluctuate. So certainly, you know, year to year or, you know, five years between is going to fluctuate. But as you start putting these together, you start getting your normal range. And so they do a great job of presenting it in this user interface as well. Yes. And right now you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you sign up at insidetracker.com backslash consummate. So that's 
insidetracker.com backslash C-O-N-S-U-M-M-A-T-E, or just head to the show notes to grab that link. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working as well, then definitely head over to insidetracker.com backslash consummate. Okay. With that said, let's get back into today's episode. We have Lori Laun on. Uh, so Lori and I met at the Outspoken Summit back in November that I spoke at with the Feisty Media crew for my other podcast, The Business of Fitness. And Lori is a cycling coach. She does so many different things. She has the Savvy Bike, that's her main company, uh, but she also does a lot of virtual coaching, uh, virtual bike fitting, which is a really cool kind of new process, especially for you know people who ne- can't necessarily get to a local bike fitter. Um, but today we were talking all about road bike skills, which is her real passion. And I love this conversation because road bike skills are something we do not talk about. Mm-hmm. And I've always been impressed. You know, our, our friend coach Chris Mayhew uh, has done a bunch of clinics in this direction. You know, he's more on the cyclocross road things. And I'm always impressed. Like some of the clinics are really well done, how they sort of gradually ease people into group riding and, you know, they maybe have them on grass or different things. So I've always, I've, I've been less interested in it myself as, as a coach, but I'm always, I always steal little bits from some of the, the stuff I see these road coaches doing. Yeah. And she talks all about, you know, not just why it's important, but how to do some of this stuff at home if you don't necessarily have someone doing a clinic in your area. Although, honestly, I think there are more and more of these kind of clinics. So definitely, even if you don't know of one around you, look it up and see. A lot of the clubs now are doing it as a, I guess, liability measure, really, right? It's a service to the members. But yeah, our local road club does like some element of learn to group ride, which, you know, sort of is... Uh, synonymous i guess with road riding really yeah i've actually been impressed there are some cycling clubs now that require going to you mm-hmm. know like a, a couple safety of training. these things yeah. yeah which i i don't know why more places don't do i mean i know it's a bit of a barrier because now it's you have to be at this specific thing at this mm-hmm. time but yeah. from a safety perspective and from like an enjoyment of riding perspective i think it's so smart well it is it is i think you know as far as keeping people safe and in the sport i think that's important but it's also i think it's more fun when you start learning how to draft and you learn how to you know talk to someone while you bike ride without being super tense and yeah it's just it's it's what would keep people in right so it is that being a beginner you know even when you're an advanced rider right i think you know as you said vanderpool and the, the we all have something to learn about how our road bikes can be maneuvered yeah i mean that's what Lori and i were talking about especially when it comes to descending cornering like there is no one that shouldn't be practicing that right like there's a reason that even you know in cyclocross the pros aren't like oh i learned how to do barriers therefore i'm never practicing my mm-hmm. barriers mm-hmm. ever yeah you again. can always get better and develop efficiency yeah, and that's a lot of this stuff right is, is developing it so that as you get more and more tired or more you know you're working more and or harder and harder and harder you can still perform you know the vanderpool flick we'll call it mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right well let's uh let's get into this conversation enjoy my chat with Lori. Lori. Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Good morning. I'm excited too. Okay, it's good to so, see you, Molly. I know. I know. I feel like we've we've really gotten to to do this a few times for all <laughs> different reasons lately, which is just just fantastic. And I was so excited to talk to you the first time we chatted about road bike skills because very few people talk about road bike skills. So yeah. let's let's start with just your background in cycling. How did you how did you get into the cycling in general? How did you get started with coaching? How did you get savvy bike started? Give me the give me the details. I was a non-athlete. I could have been you and me both. no <laughs> less of an athlete. I um 
was a scholar and a musician, and I ran one season of track to put on my college applications, but I was really a non-athlete. I didn't thrive. I didn't enjoy it. And um, in my late 20s, as a social outlet, I joined a ski club. It was a singles club, and I thought, oh, I'll meet men. And I, I learned to ski, and I realized um, I was actually pretty good at skiing. And when I was growing up, I thought all sports really involved balls, um, except track, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I couldn't catch, and I couldn't throw, and I couldn't hit, and I couldn't do anything with a ball, so I thought I was not an athlete. And once I started skiing, I was like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this other type of sport, which is a balance sport. Mm-hmm. And from skiing, I started skating. Inline skating had just become popular at that point. And I know, I was Amazing. actually faster. Faster than my boyfriend, um, which nice. <laughs> caused Wait, a little you, stress. Did you he meet was him the skiing? Uber athlete. He was the president of the ski club. Yeah. Nice. So, so I had met worked. him skiing. Yeah, <laughs> it did. It worked out quite well. Um, and so I started skiing. I did play a little volleyball, but I wasn't very good at it. But it was mostly for the beer drinking, not the volleyballing and the social aspect of it. And then I moved to California. And when I moved here, everybody was fit and healthy and beautiful and rich. And I thought I'll be just like them. And I got fit and healthy. That was good. And, <laughs> and beautiful I, too. A, I can't speak to the rest. Exactly. But, but you're gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> and I, um, I had a bike. I had bought a mountain bike in the late 80s when mountain bikes were first introduced as well. Oh, wow. So I had a, a, probably a first or second edition specialized hard rock, but I was afraid of it. I we and at that time we didn't really mountain bike on trails. People bought mountain bikes at that point to ride on the road. Mm-hmm. It was just a new style of bike that had been introduced. And um, even though I rode as a kid and into my early twenties for transportation, I had no confidence as an adult riding this bike, and I was terrified of everything. And it was pre cell phone days. It was pre GPS days. I thought. I'm going to get lost. I'm going to get harmed. I'm going to fall off the side of the road, which is kind of ironic on a mountain bike since they're meant to ride off the road. But you're supposed to ride off the side of the road. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, I was afraid of going uphill because it hurt. I was afraid of going downhill because it was terrifying. So I was not a gifted natural athlete or cyclist when I first started riding. But I moved to California and everybody rode bikes. And I thought, I want to do this. And Long story short, I signed up for the California AIDS Ride, which was a seven-day event from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is just like Olympians and world champions and amazing athletes. And then I realized it was a bunch of people just like me. And um, took a long time to get over my anxiety about being around other people and feeling self-conscious and wearing cycling clothes, which I didn't feel entitled to wear. Um, I trained in a sports bra and I did have a pair of cycling shorts. And eventually, as it got colder into the fall, I started wearing T-shirts, which, as we know, was not a very good choice because you get sweaty and cold and so I came in and I bought a jersey, a men's jersey, probably like five sizes too big. Oh yeah, but that's what that's what was available in the in the nineties. So, um, and I succeeded. I think that was the biggest takeaway from that experience was I found something I was good at. It made me feel really good about myself and really happy and improve my self esteem. And um, I decided I want to do more of it. And eventually, when a couple of years later, I was. Um, I had been working at Charles Schwab and I was laid off and I thought, I'm going to get paid to ride my bike. How can I do this? Which sounded crazy, but 
<laughs> and I thought through all the jobs that I knew of in the cycling world. I thought I could be a messenger. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that cool. Or I could be a tour guide. And I was like, I don't want to carry luggage. I could <laughs> um, be a coach. And I was like, oh, that's a cool career. And I had gone back to school and uh, studied exercise physiology and training and adaptive fitness. And I was like, how can I build this into this coaching career? And so I found USA Cycling. And uh, at the time, they did a lot more coaching education. So there was a week-long class in bike fitting that I took, bike fitting, biomechanics, and um, injury prevention. Mm -hmm. I got my, then it was called a club coach license, and eventually worked my way up to the top level of coaching in the United States. And um, yeah, learned everything I could learn. And then I realized no one in the right mind would hire me because I was a girl who just started riding bikes and had never been a professional. And so I started my own club. Uh, I started a women's club 21 years ago called Velo Girls, and we are still here and still riding. And we've gone through many different iterations over the years, including having a pro team for a while and road racing, mountain bike racing, cross racing, and mostly recreational riding now. So, so good. And I mean, you know, this is for the consummate athlete. Now I have to keep reminding myself, don't go into the business side, but it's so fascinating <laughs> with you. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to have to have you on my other podcast as well, because I love that you're just like, okay, if I'm going to be a coach, I need people to like, think that I'm like capable of being a coach. Okay. I'm going to create this community. That's going to allow me to have that. It's just so yeah. smart. And I love it so much. <laughs> well, in the old structure of USA cycling, um, you know, 25 or so years ago, there was a pretty formal structure for how mm -hmm. you could become a racer. And typically, you didn't just buy a jersey and buy a license and show up for a race. You went through this process with your clubs where the club would train you. Each club had a coach. And they would train you. And eventually, they would say, okay, you're safe enough to go race your bike. We approve of this. And that structure went away. But when I first became a coach, it was still part of the coaching education. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it focused on juniors and development as well. And I thought, can I take this model and use it with a bunch of women and do the same thing? And I love so. that you're you're basically still essentially doing that. And I think it's so important yeah. because I mean, for, as I'm hearing that at first, I'm automatically going to like, oh, well, that's really creating this huge barrier of entry for people to get into cycling and into racing. But then the other part of my head is like, yeah, there probably should be some barrier to right. getting into your first criterium because that's yeah. a terrifying thing. <laughs> yeah, there is. And we talk about it at the regional level a lot. There is no barrier now. Anybody can sign up. You pay your, you know, your license fee and you can race. And but what we're looking at is the longevity of the sport. So if I mm -hmm. want to create an athlete who's going to continue to race, race after race after race, year after year. I want to create an environment where they're going to succeed. I, success is everything to me. If I can set somebody up for success, that's really important. I don't want to set them up for failure. And letting someone just sign up for a race is a failure, in my opinion, because they may not ever come back. They may harm other people. And I think women really relate to that. When you talk to women who start racing about their goals, they're like, I don't want to be last. Who cares? I've been last so many times. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to hurt anybody. Yep. Yep. Now, of course, the crash fives don't think that same way, but women definitely think that way, right? So, 100%, yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I love it. And I mean, we're kind of getting into this, this next part of the question I wanted to ask about why skills matter on the road. And I mean, I think we've, we've started to understand in cycling. We always say that like in cycling, people don't seem to understand, understand the skill element period, whether you're talking about mountain biking or road, road cycling, like people just don't think about it, but you would never, you know, jump in a pool if you didn't know how to swim. Right. But for like swim lessons make sense. Golf lessons make sense. But for some reason, cycling lessons just seem sort of weird. I think it's because when we're kids, we learn how to ride a bike and we sort of assume like, okay, that box got checked. We're good to go. But there's so much. Let's go back a second. (laughs) Do we learn how to ride a bike as a child? And I would argue, no, we just do it. Mm -hmm. We don't learn it. We as kids, first of all, we're very intuitive. And something Mm -hmm. happens as we age where we now have barriers that we've created for ourselves or our mind has created for us. But as a kid, you just do things. You don't understand mortality. (laughs) You don't understand having a job on Monday or having responsibility or a family to take care of. Mm -hmm. You just do things. And sometimes you fall down and you get hurt and you learn from that process, maybe, or maybe not. But I would argue that we don't actually learn. We don't understand the physics of riding a bike. We don't understand how my body interacts with the bike and how the bike interacts with the terrain. Mm -hmm. And so then as adults, I rode a bike as a kid all over the place. That was how I got everywhere. (laughs) Even in upstate New York in the winter, we rode bikes. Yep. And But when I became an adult, then I had fear. And that's the big barrier for many of us. Fear can be, um, it can stop us from doing the things that we want to do. And uh, we just don't understand the physics of it. And so that's where uh, the skills piece comes in, I think, is understanding how does the bike actually work? Mm -hmm. What keeps it upright? What are the, and it's very similar for most balance sports, which is why when you take someone who's ridden a horse or skied, or ridden a motorcycle, they usually can ride a bike pretty well. Mm-hmm. Someone who dances, ballet dancers are great bike riders often because they understand the physics, right? What are the rules that keep my bike upright? Momentum, speed is my friend. Look where I want to go. That's kind of it. There's not a lot more, right? And that's good yep. life, life advice, right? Yeah, keep right? moving. Look where you want to go. I love it. I love it. Just yeah. summed up in two sentences. But I mean, <laughs> you do you do whole workshops on these these we road do. skills, obviously. Uh, you do. know, it's not just look where you want to go. There's a lot of like n- great nuances you explain. We'll actually link to the article that you and I did for bicycling that talks about yep. some of these road skills and really breaks them down. But let's talk about what skills, you know, okay, actually, first of all, let's maybe just talk about what are some of the basic road skills that mm-hmm. you're teaching when you're doing clinics? Yeah. Uh, So we do two things in our clinics. And when we first developed our clinic series, they were really developed for a racing team. I wasn't teaching beginners. I wasn't teaching folks who were just recreational riders. I was teaching racers. And that's kind of what everyone was doing at the time. Um, There were kind of traffic skills classes that were taught by the bike coalitions. So teaching Mm -hmm. you how to coexist on the road with other road users. And then there were racing clinics, which really just focused on what I consider advanced skills, close proximity, how to sprint, how to corner, and all of the things that that happen after we actually learn how to ride our bike. So we started with racing skills. And eventually I was like, you know, everybody really should be learning the same things we're teaching the racers. And I delved a little more into the fundamentals, which were how do I actually handle my bike as an individual before I put myself into a group situation, into a close proximity situation like racing. So Mm -hmm. what do we teach? Um, We start with 
I hate to use the word lecture, but a discussion um, about the physics of the bike, how it works and why different components of the bike are designed the way they are, why we have a drop bar, how that changes my weight distribution on the bike and why that's important and why my weight distribution correlates to my speed. So there is a position for climbing and a position for moderate speed and a position for descending and why it's safest to do each of those and how the Mm -hmm. bike changes when my hands are in different positions because my body weight changes. I love that. I really, every time I hear stuff like this, I'm just so sad that I didn't have that education when I first (laughs) got into cycling because I definitely am very aware of the bad habits that I have and I work to fix them. I know what I'm doing wrong, but like... My hands are happy in the hoods. They are not happy right? in the drops. Team My hoods. whole body is just like <laughs> wrecked if I try to go in the, like, in the drops. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. and I know but- I'm so aware of like the physics and how it's helping me and all that. And I just cannot get that clutch out of my yeah. gut. And it's because I didn't take any of these classes when I got into yeah. it because I was a triathlete. So mm-hmm. we have no sense of like bike. Go skills. fast We're in just- a straight line. Go fast in a straight line. <laughs> Never right. mind that we're not training in On a straight bike line. that's designed to go fast in a straight line. Right? Yeah. So a tri yeah. bike or a TT bike is going to handle very differently than a road bike. But you can take the same skill set and the same concepts from a road bike and transfer them to other types of bikes. Mm-hmm. And I would also say that the skill set for mountain biking and road cycling is really the same. The different, because the physics are the same, but the difference is the terrain. So when I'm riding a mountain bike, typically I'm on terrain that is steeper, both up and down, and it's looser. And Mm -hmm. truthfully, I just have to be more precise in what I'm doing with my weight distribution versus on the road, I can fake it. Mm -hmm. And and I do until I can't anymore and then something goes wrong. But to your point, what I would say is it's so much easier to teach someone who is a novice rider or who will at least open up to feeling like a novice. And that's a big mental challenge, especially for people who are high performing in their lives, people who are successful in their careers. It's very hard to then take a step back and say, I'm a beginner and it's okay to be a beginner. And I try to help people understand that that's actually really cool that when I'm a beginner, every time I ride my bike, I could improve. Mm -hmm. Things can get better. When you've been riding for 20 years, you're working just not to get slower or more scared or more tentative or all those things. So um, being a big beginner is really cool. I love that. Yeah. It is very hard though, especially because at first when you get in that beginner mindset, you do lose a little of your efficiency, right? Like, cause you've developed the, like I have efficiency that I've developed in the hoods that if I go into the drops, I'm now uncomfortable and it's awkward and I'm not as effective. So It actually like, but I know if I just focus on that for a week or two, probably be fine. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so practice is another important aspect of learning, right? So we, we take a clinic and in four hours, it's not like I can wave my wand and you're going to be a pro cyclist. You're going to learn the tools and some things that you learn will be easy and some things will be more challenging for you. And then you have to go and practice. And that's the one thing that's missing. If I learn a musical instrument, if I learn a language, if I learn to cook, I'm going to practice things. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to spend time doing drills, not just doing the thing. And most of us, we think about how fast can I go? How far can I go? How much can I climb? What do I see on Strava? 
We don't go to the parking lot and practice counter steering, for example, or totally. taking our hand off the bar. <laughs> Can I tell you how many riders can't take a hand off the bar? And it's like, okay, this is not a hard skill. But anyways, um, you asked what skills do we teach? <laughs> yes. Yeah. What so are sort of after, our basics? <laughs> exactly. After the fundamentals. So like understanding bar position and how our brakes are meant to work. And we do talk about things like, you know, what causes us to crash? Well, brakes for one thing. And people don't understand that. Everyone Ironically. uses their brakes because they're tentative, right? But brakes are one of the two reasons I think that we cause ourselves to crash. Mm -hmm. um, because when I brake, I don't have traction. And traction is everything on a bicycle or a car or a motorcycle. And so traction is one thing. Steering is the other important concept that people don't understand that we don't steer with our handlebar. It's not a steering wheel like a car. We steer with the back, right? All, the party in the back, business in the front. Um, I steer with my saddle. I steer with my core. I steer with my shoulders, with my chin, all of that, not mm -hmm. my hands. My hands follow what I do mm -hmm. when I'm actuating that movement somewhere else. So yes, the bar may move, but that's, I'm not initiating the movement at the bar. And yep. that's a really tough concept for a lot of people. And the braking concept is probably even harder. And when you listen to people riding, you realize they brake all the time. Oh, yeah. And, you, you, and we drive that way. So that's mm -hmm. the other challenge is you're on the highway and the car in front of you applies their brakes and you see the lights and what's your response you slam on your brakes instead of taking your foot off the gas yep. so understanding that concept and how that's a much safer concept is really important yeah so, absolutely yeah but skills we keep it pretty basic um starting and stopping which i mean we say basic <laughs> but that's actually huge right I it mean is and there are lots of ways to start and stop, but there are safer ways and there are more efficient ways. And stopping in particular is really important. If we create habits that are consistent, so we do things the same way all the time, then it becomes innate. I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the key, I think, in cycling is we have to, like you said, you don't think about it. And when you try to do something differently, then you have to think about it. And yeah. the same is true in my skill set. So if I can create a skill that is innate, then I can build on that skill. And so stopping leads into emergency stopping or a panic stop, which is a hugely important skill, not only to avoid a collision, but also to descend. So understanding how to change my weight distribution on the bike to apply my brakes with force. So braking hard over a short distance, mm -hmm. then I can keep my bike stable when I'm descending as well. And that mm -hmm. builds a lot of confidence because what are people afraid of in descending? I lose control of my bike. I can't stop when I want to. I'm going to slide out, which we also do a drill that demonstrates it's really hard to make a bike slide out. Um, people don't realize that. <laughs> That's their one fear. They're like, oh, these skinny little tires, I'm just going to skid. No, you won't. <laughs> if you don't brake, you won't skid. So, um, so starting stopping emergency stops, we teach folks how to ride with one hand. We teach folks how to ride with one hand and look behind them because that's a really important skill. You can't just hope there's not a car there when you're passing another yep. rider or trying to merge to the left. Um, and as many devices as we have, things like radar devices and mirrors and everything else, we still need to do a shoulder check, whether we're in our car or on our bike. Yep. It's so funny you brought that up because every week we often do, uh, we do yoga for Peter's clients. And the first thing I always start with is like 
we're sitting we have our arms above our head we're like look at and then we do like a look over the shoulder and i always talk about how we like have such little sh- like neck mobility yeah. these days but it's so important as a cyclist to be able to look over both shoulders and see it what's is. coming and we just don't think about it <laughs> it's funny i have a new chiropractor i just started working with and she was going through an assessment and i have a really big range of motion over my left shoulder which in the united states is probably because I look over my left shoulder when I ride my bike and a limited range of motion over my right shoulder because I don't do it as often. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, this amazing. is weird. And I'm like, you know, I ride bikes, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I we teach that. that. We teach how to ride no-handed because why not? Um, because it helps people understand how we steer our bike because mm-hmm. it's fun because you did it when you were a kid and you should be able to do it now because what if you win a race? I was just going to say. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> why so we're working on we, the lifting our arms overhead. It's why we're looking both ways. <laughs> exactly. We're ready. Exactly. Um, we also teach some drills that aren't actually skills. So we'll teach a drill um, that you often see in the mountain bike world as well called body bike separation, which is a drill where you're moving around on the bike, creating separation between mm-hmm. your body. And um, not necessarily something we do on the road, particularly, although it does lead into the emergency stop skill because we're also Mm -hmm. moving our body backward and forward. Um, What else do we teach? Uh, No handed, we teach uh, just steering, right? So we do a drill we call hula hips, which is a steering drill using your hips to make the bike move. Yeah, almost like skiing Uh, and counter steering, which is probably... Counter steering is probably the cornerstone skill of cycling, as we know. Mm -hmm. And that's our cornering skill. That's our descending skill. So in four hours, we're teaching people how to descend between emergency stops and counter steering on a flat parking lot, basically. So I love it. I love it. I know. And that's so one of the important concepts, I think, in skills progression is progression, (laughs) right? Not just going to the top of the mountain and trying to descend without touching your brakes for 10 miles. Um, Instead, we teach people in a flat, safe area and somewhere where we can build the confidence in a low risk situation. Mm -hmm. And then we can progress. And I always tell people, think of every tiny grade as either a climb or a descent. If you're on a 3% grade, you could ride it however you want. But I could also practice my skill while I'm doing that. And I really like that. Yeah. And over time, that allows us then to progress to the steeper grades. And, you know, here in Northern California, pretty much our average is 8%. There isn't Mm -hmm. a lot that's less steep. And there's a little bit that's steeper than that. But it allows us to build up to that Mm -hmm. by practicing on those shallow grades. Yeah, I really like that stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I love that because that was actually one of the things I had on my list of things I wanted to ask you about was tips for integrating skills training into our everyday rides. And to me, that is the most brilliant way of doing it is just looking at everything, every like tiny corner, every tiny descent, every tiny climb. Like, Mm -hmm. How do we do this the right way? I think that's so smart. And obviously, we can just practice skills. You know, if I ride from my home, Maybe I pass a parking lot or an industrial park or a business park or something, or I'm on a multi-use trail, but it's quiet and I can just do some swoopy turns or practice taking my hand off the bar, which surprisingly for a lot of riders, because they don't have the core strength to support their body, they're putting a lot of weight on their hands. Um, So for a lot of riders, that's a really hard skill. Mm -hmm. They'll ride an hour and drink a whole bottle (laughs) at the end. They'll stop. 
or wear a camel bag, which is not a, the worst thing in the world. But, you know, there are times when I need to be able to communicate to other road users. I want to signal. I want to mm-hmm. be able to look. I need to be able to take my hands off the bar. Mm-hmm. I need to grab the thing, take a selfie, whatever it is that I do. Yep. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I feel like actually I've almost had to shift some of my discussions around nutritional advice to talk about the skill component. First of all, the skill, like you just said, of being able to get your gels out, get your water bottle Mm -hmm. out. But we've also had to almost shift to be like, okay, like, let's start with where where are you at right now? Because sure, a bar might be better for you and you might prefer to eat a cookie instead of having a sports drink. But if you're struggling to even get your bottle out, like, we're probably going to have to start with a sports drink because you can't eat enough unless you're like stopping all the time. Yeah. People don't think about that, but it's so important. But the cool thing I will say with um, the introduction of formal gravel, Mm. is that a way to say it? (laughs) The fact that we now have normalized having a a bento box or a top tube bag. Totally. Or a handlebar bag, things that roadies in the past would have been like, right. Oh, I love my Chase Fest. And I can say uh, a couple of years ago, I raced Rebecca's Private Idaho. And what saved me in that race is I never stopped because mm-hmm. I had my my Camelback Chase Fest on and all the descents, which were quite long and bumpy. I could continue to drink while everybody else couldn't. Yep. And then they were stopping at rest stops. And that made a huge, huge difference for me. And the advance in the technology of wearable vests and things like that oh, is yeah. great because you don't even feel it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the old fashioned, the first, <laughs> I'll share, I went up to Napa the first year I was riding and I just got my road bike a couple of weeks before and Napa is a beautiful place to ride in the spring. It's lots of flowers and, um, and I took a camelback with me and I don't know if I didn't tighten it or close it. <laughs> I ended up soaked and it was like March. So it was not warm. And I and I gave up. I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to learn how to drink out of a bottle because I was a terrible cyclist when I started. And that was my solution. I was like, oh, we're gonna do this long ride and I'm gonna wear this camelback thing. Well, and it dripped all over me because I didn't close it correctly. I just got cold. Oh, but that that hurts. But nowadays, right, we've got great, great options. Um, Nice little top tube bags, which they're a little difficult for women, I will say, because our top tubes are shorter and we can have some interface with our knees when we stand. Mm -hmm. So we can't put anything too wide on the top tube, but it's a good option. Mm -hmm. Um, Having cargo shorts where I have a side pocket, which might be easier if I don't have shoulder mobility to Mm -hmm. reach versus into a jersey pocket. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of better options these days. And I think, like I said, I think the fact that gravel is now kind of the normalized part of the sport um, we're starting to see these things that in the past we had never seen. So, mm-hmm. I've actually yeah. honestly wondered, it seems very much tradition oriented why road cyclists don't ride like with, with packs on because I'm like, mm-hmm. honestly, if I think about like some of the road races I did like back in, back in my road racing days, I'm like for an 80 mile race, why didn't I just have a vest right. on? Like, especially because I didn't have anyone in the feed zone. So I had to rely on neutral feeds like if I don't I think just USA cycling on. allows it or maybe they so. do no they do no they do because I do remember I ran a racing development program for a long time and there was a girl on a steel bike on our development program who not only had a mirror but she had a camelback on and a frame pump and she actually won the race and I was gonna say all the women the women in the field were making fun of her behind her back they were saying things which is kind of indicative of the way women's road racing can be sometimes they were not kind 
And yep. it was like, like that when I was racing. Just too. one missed race. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So but I much. could see from a safety point of view. I mean, I remember um, cyclocross in Northern California is usually hot and dusty. It's not unusual to have a hundred degree day in the fall yep. and it's not Belgium, you know? And I do remember at one place, my first season of racing cyclocross, I decided I'd wear a camelback. Who knows why for a 40 minute race, but I thought it made sense. It might be overkill. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to this run up where I'm shouldering the bike and apparently the saddle got caught on the strap of the camelback. And I tried to take the bike off my shoulder and I like fell down and the bike fell down <laughs> and everyone cheered. It was awesome. Um, I do it all. Amazing. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. So, but, um, and I remember years ago reading an article in Bicycling Magazine, and it was about mirrors. And George Hincapie had been um, quoted as saying, why aren't we all racing mirrors? These are the best things ever. It was after he had retired from racing. Um, and when you think about it strategically, yes, if I can see what's going on behind me, there's a great advantage there as a racer. But yeah. you just don't do it. Yeah, yeah it's really we funny what it. we've decided is like traditional for road racing. But it does seem like gravel is allowing all of these. Yeah. Like, quote unquote innovations here to suddenly like, be okay, <laughs> even though it's stuff yeah. that's been around for a very long time. <laughs> well, and I think the spirit of gravel has always been the uh, self-supported, self-contained race, mm -hmm. meaning I may not have an aid station, I may have to carry all my stuff, or I may not have teammates, you know, in a traditional road race, I might have teammates that go back to the team car and grab my bottles for me. Because, you know, they're racing for me. And we don't have that in gravel as much. Although mm -hmm. I do see, you know, as gravel is becoming more and more popular and being uh, promoted by some very large organizations, it seems like there are more and more rules being implemented. So it's yep. a very interesting transitional period. But that's another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's a podcast for another day. Um, exactly. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, let's talk. Yeah. So a lot of your other work is actually indoors, which is like, very yeah. I, I love that the, you have like this very <laughs> like dichotomy of things that you do yeah. uh, so you do spend a lot of time on on the peloton um <laughs> i would love to just hear some tips on sure. transitioning from indoor to outdoor riding because especially for newer riders who maybe yeah. built up a lot of strength on the indoor trainer over the winter mm -hmm. then suddenly they get outside possibly even for their first race is like right. one of their first rides outdoors Tips yes. for navigating that transition smoothly. And it's well, and it's a very interesting phenomenon, especially you look back at the last three years during the pandemic where a lot of people spent all their time. People Got built so strong huge fitness. Yeah. And so when I started racing, very few people trained indoors. I rode rollers because my coach said, get rollers. And then I had a compu trainer as a bike fitter. And I was like, well, this is a little more fun riding the compu trainer than being on the rollers, but I like doing both. I actually like the entertainment value of rollers, but you have to stay laser focused, right? Um, so the only people 20 years ago who were riding indoors were racers. You had to keep your fitness up over the winter and mm -hmm. rebuild that base and then, you know, build a sharp end. And nowadays, because trainers are inexpensive and there is a plethora of platforms, virtual platforms for us to not only train, but compete. It's yep. really interesting. And you mentioned Peloton. So Peloton actually, Peloton riding is relatively new to me. I've had a Peloton in my bike fit studio since 2020. And I actually work for one of the Peloton instructors as a virtual bike fitter. And I've been doing, I've done 2,500 Peloton fits in the last two and a half years. And that's been a real 
Can we just say I love that? I love that Peloton actually added in the bike fit element because like, oh my gosh, have you gone to a spin class at a gym and like seen how some people ride? It it just like, it hurts. It hurts my heart. It hurts my groin. Like everything is just in pain (laughs) thinking about it. Yes. Well, and that's interesting. Well, I, first I should clarify, I don't work for Peloton. I work for one of the instructors who has right. a coaching company. And um, yes, and it is an amazing opportunity. At first, when they reached out to me, they had started earlier in 2020. And they had, by the time they reached me, they had five fitters. And they were doing five, 600 fits a month. And um, eventually, we had a team of 28 fitters who were working um, almost full time during the pandemic because it was just so busy. And and as you know, all of these indoor training platforms and especially Peloton just blossomed at that point. Mm-hmm. And and at first, I thought, yeah, I could do a few weeks. That would be okay. And I had never been on a Zoom call. I had to admit, I'd never made a FaceTime, so it was all new to me. But it didn't sound really exciting to be on video all day long. And as I started working, I realized this is like the coolest thing ever. I'm introducing people to a sport that I love and teaching them about ergonomics and the fact that there is a correct way and a less correct way of riding a bike. And a lot of folks who come into the Peloton world had never even taken a spin class, Mm -hmm. never mind been on an outdoor bike. And so you see a lot of people who look like they're sitting in a chair and just moving their legs and reaching the handlebar with their fingertips (laughs) and teaching them about the the sport specific position, the ready position, the attack position, right? So being able to squat, to hinge, to engage the glutes, to engage the core and have light hands. And it's been a phenomenal experience. I have fit people all over the world and um, met amazing people from teenagers to people in their 80s. And um, yeah, it's been very interesting. But I didn't really ride. I got the Peloton for my bike fit studio, but I still, the last few years, I spent a lot more time running. And then when I would ride indoors, I would ride Swift because mm-hmm. we had, you know, smart trainers at home. And, and I liked Zwift. I was a beta tester. It was cool. And I liked the competitive aspect of it as well. But I also like being able to import my workouts from Training Peaks and use them there. Mm-hmm. And so I got the Peloton of the studio and it was at work. And I was like, I don't really want to go to work and get all sweaty and ride this bike. And I, I did like 30 rides. But then this fall, I had two surgeries and I live in a very small house. And I was riding Zwift and I thought one of the surgeries was a knee and the other was an abdominal surgery. And I thought it's going to be really hard to get on and off my trainer. And I think it was just an excuse to get another Peloton. (laughs) So I got the Bike Plus at home, which actually has an accurate power meter. The original bike uses algorithms to estimate and it's all over the place. It's, um, but what's cool about Peloton I found is the metrics. A lot of people are driven by metrics and I am too. I like to check off the box. And so I can um, be rewarded with the number of rides I've done. I can get badges for special things. You get a blue dot for every day, you know, the perfect attendance prize, that kind of thing. And I haven't quite drunk the Kool-Aid. Like, you know, there are people who, (laughs) because Peloton also offers, it's not just cycling. They have a treadmill. They have a rower. You can do indoor and outdoor rowing, cycling. They have a just workout option. So I could like rake my yard and turn on the Peloton app and get credit for it if I wanted to. And I'm a little more purist than that. I'm like, okay, I'm doing my actual workouts. They have a power zone program. So based on Andy Coggins power zones and the theories of training, um, my boss actually is the instructor who started that program. And it's phenomenal. You know, they do power zone endurance rides that range from 
45 minutes to 90 minutes. They have power zone rides and they have power zone max rides. And so you get a really good, well-balanced training calendar, kind of that 70, 30, 80, 20 mix of endurance and intensity. And there are structured programs on Peloton as well. And then there's all these other groups that have created kind of stand parallel businesses, we'll call it. So there's a program called the Power Zone Pack and they put you on a team. And and so there's camaraderie and you have an actual training calendar that they put together for you. And there's a challenge that ranges from four to eight weeks. And so you do this. And again, you get to check the box and see a graph and, you know, all these things. And you get a training stress score and it's pretty awesome stuff. I know. And so you, I think I, like we don't really think about this, and like, or we don't like hear about this in the cycling industry because we always think of Peloton as being like very soul cycle, fun. like yeah, yeah, we're doing like arm yeah. stuff while we're on it, and like dance, jazz That's hands. True. And I will uh, say, probably of the Peloton community, it's probably only about twenty five percent that do the what I would consider kind of traditional serious power based training. But it's um, great to know that you can. Like that's actually yes. really interesting to me. And I think one of the the things that I really like about the Peloton platform is they have classes as short as five minutes. They have classes as long as 90 minutes. They have, as I said, strength and bar and Pilates and and pretty much they have meditation. I mean, everything you want to do. They have mobility classes they just introduced, which I think is phenomenal. Um, And they have instructors for everybody. Like they're instructors I've never taken because I only take the power zone instructors. And there was one who my boss was a guest in one of his classes. And I thought, oh, I'll take it just for kicks. And I was like, oh, who does this stuff? Um, It was like (laughs) up and down and none of it made scientific sense to me, right? It wasn't like solid trade. It was funny and it was entertaining. And there are definitely people who need that. Mm -hmm. And I would say Peloton, um, when I took this job, I joined like every Facebook group. There are so many Facebook groups related to Peloton. All the different instructors have groups and all the different, you know, there's the bougie bees and the broke ass bitches and the Peloton sober squad. And, you know, you name it. Oh, wow. I love it. Yeah. I am. so. I love this. (laughs) It's, you know, and, and it's funny because my, my, well, we won't go there. I was going to tell a story, but, um, well, now I want to know. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, my ex would, did not want to have a Peloton in the house, um, <laughs> which is why we rode Swift. <laughs> and I found sharing a smart trainer between two bikes, even though we at one point tried to set up a frame with a sizing bar and a sizing stem and everything so we could share a bike and it just was never the same. And I was like, it was a pain. And no, it's such the, a pain. The Peloton it's- is easy. I just hop on. It's nope. set up for me. I don't have to do anything. I turn on the screen and I touch a class and I go. And it is I could not no agree excuse. more. I absolutely yeah. agree. No, we we have one smart trainer for the two of us. And as a result, <laughs> I never use it because taking off one bike and putting on the other is just yep. time that I am not interested in spending. Like that's just yeah. it's a barrier. Like Yeah. Sounds and silly, I, but <laughs> and I will say the Peloton, the footprint is small. It's I always feel like when I have a bike and a trainer, everything feels like it could fall over at any moment. And um, it just is easy. And I, my consistency, I've ridden 1,200 miles this year on the Peloton. This year, we're in mid-March. We're the beginning of March, which is pretty significant. And I brought my TSS up from basically zero. My first ride back was five minutes, and I averaged 11 watts. Um, That's I know in my pajamas, my slippers. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Right. Cause you can do that on your Peloton to being able to get my FTP back to where it was 
um, before my surgery. And um, unfortunately, my weight's a little higher than it was. So my power to weight ratio is off. But I've been able to, and here in Northern California, we have had the most ridiculous winter ever. It usually rains like three days a year. We've had like nonstop for almost three months. Um, we've had rain, we've had snow, we've had gale force winds and, you know, devastation. And when I was running, that didn't bother me. But when I, I don't want to go out and ride my bike in that um, weather and then have to clean my bike. And, that's, yeah. Right? So getting on the Peloton's easy. But back to your original question, there was a question there. I remember yeah. that. How, How do, do, do I transition? Try? It's hard. <laughs> well, clearly, I don't go out the first time and try to join a race or a group ride, I would yeah. say. And unfortunately, people don't understand that, especially that there is a whole breed of new people to the cycling world who don't realize that there is a skill component. And they'll, mm -hmm. they're like, they see themselves on Zwift and they're like, I'm a rock star. I should be a cat mm -hmm. too. <laughs> and well, and, and they try to upgrade. <laughs> and Zwift presents a false sense of confidence, I found, like right. on the platform, because the way it's so like lifelike that when yeah. you are cornering, you kind of like find yourself like almost leaning a little bit, but that's not actually how one corners because it's not like I'm actually like shifting my weight. Right. I'm just like tilting my head because it feels exactly. like I should. <laughs> um, and same with climbing, you like kind of start yeah. getting into like a climbing position or like a descending position, but you're not really in it, right. but you have this sense that you've done it before because you've been it, like the graphics are that good. Yeah. So yeah, I can um, see how this could be a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I were to be scientific about it, I would say you probably need to spend 10, 20 hours just out on your bike alone, which isn't significant. That's not huge no, for people who are training. Well, maybe. Okay. Like it's <laughs> a week yeah. or two. <laughs> exactly. So you need to spend some time outside on mixed terrain, right? So doing some ups, doing some downs, doing some flats and riding by yourself before you try to integrate yourself back in. And, and it was interesting because after my surgeries, I hadn't been on my outdoor bike and then I had to teach skills clinic. I was like, this could be interesting. <laughs> it was fine. You know, after years and years and years of doing it, your body's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, and surprisingly, I am very impressed with how my fitness has transferred. So I, I've only done one outdoor ride. I've taught a bunch of clinics, um, but I taught a bunch of climbing descending clinics. And I was like, oh, I got climbing legs. This is good. And I was not tentative on my descents, which I was a little nervous about that. Cause you know, when you don't climb a lot, you don't descend a lot and your perception of speed and of safety changes. And I was like, oh, but I'm still okay. So I guess, you know, years and years of experience left me feeling okay and confident. And, mm -hmm. but knowing the skill makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And, but new riders don't have that. That's the big thing, especially people who have not climbed or descended. And yeah. I've ridden with lots of people in different parts of the country who come to California and we don't have, or we have elevation here that they don't have in other places and people can be super fast on the flats and then they get to a descent and they're like, holy wow, this is different. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do and I'm going to ride my brakes all the time. And so, yeah. And new riders are like that too. It's, mm -hmm. They've been riding inside and all of a sudden they're terrified of going down a hill. So it turns out so it come is to terrifying. a clinic. Yeah. Come to a clinic. <laughs> well, it can be. It definitely can be. It, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and one of the biggest things I noticed after spending three years running was just the differential in speed. You know, when you run, you don't run all that fast. Mm -hmm. And then you're on a bike and you're going downhill and it's like, whoa, 40 feels a lot faster than it used to feel. Mm -hmm. And it takes some time to kind of build up the or numb that sensation, I guess. And remember, you know, where I look 
makes a big difference in how fast I perceive I'm going. I had this argument with Peter, actually, when we were in Florida, and I hadn't ridden the mountain bike for a while. So I was running on trails down there. And then I got on my mountain bike and did the same trails. And I said to him after, I was like, it took me, you know, 45 minutes to remember where I needed to be looking. Yeah. Because I am so like, I was running that exact same trail. So I sort of like, Mm -hmm. knew where I needed to look running. But that's very different than where I needed to look riding. (laughs) It's definitely very different. And the reverse is also true. I've gotten in trouble doing things like walking because I'm looking as though I'm riding a bike yep. and I don't look down at my feet and all of a sudden I trip over, you know, the crack in the sidewalk. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. It's like, but yeah, it's the further away I look, the slower it feels like I'm going. Yep. And that's hugely important for descending. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and again, that's not necessarily a skill we teach, but we do talk about it, which is having that depth perception, having the time to, to react to mm-hmm. whatever it is on the road. And that's why we look. And when people say, look where you want to go, they think, oh, I'm looking at my front wheel. No, it's way too late at that point. Beside the fact that you have um, a reaction in your brain when you start to drop your head, and your body goes into this panicked state. Whereas if I'm looking down the road, everything feels calmer, it feels more settled. And I have that time to say, oh, I can perceive that there is a change in the terrain or an obstacle or a turn or I have to shift or whatever. And I have the time to do that. Mm -hmm. So hugely important. Yeah. And it's also a reason why I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of having a huge dashboard on my handlebar, you know, my phone, or even a computer that shows me too much. Yes, I want my navigation, I want to be able to um, follow my workout. If I have one, I want to be able to download my data afterwards, but I'm not going to look at my computer. Because that's a distraction to what I should be looking at, which is down the road. Mm hmm. Yep, have made that mistake, have broken frames. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yep, yep. I once flipped in a pothole, like caught my front wheel in it, and uh, the the wheel stayed. The rest of the bike and me came up and over and the frame like ripped at the the head tube. Yeah. That was a good one. You're okay though. Clearly yeah, yeah. you're still here. Yeah, that yeah. was oh god, like 15 years ago now. Yeah. I was so mad. It doesn't Learned take much if your weight <laughs> is in the wrong place for the wrong thing to happen, right? So yep. we know if we're going to approach an obstacle like that, a whole uh, crack, a uh, obstacle in the road, lifting up a little bit is probably the best thing we can do. And if our weight just falls in, yeah. Exactly. It's actually one of the skills in gravel that I find kind of challenging because when we, when we look at a drop bar, and if I'm descending on the road, the safest place to be is in my drop. It gives me the best control of my brakes, the most power of my brakes, it gives me the best modulation, my weight's in the right place. But on gravel, sometimes, depending on how technical you're riding, um, we ride mostly mountain bike trails here. And so a lot of technical terrain on our gravel bikes and or I've ridden in Oregon, where it's all sand. And Mm -hmm. if you're in your drops, all of a sudden, you kind of drop in and don't come back out. There's an interesting balance there, because Mm -hmm. I want the safety of being in my drops. But I may not want that much weight on the front of the bike because it's yep. a little harder to pull up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I could talk to you about skills all day, <laughs> but I think we should go with where can everyone find you and hopefully visit you in NorCal yeah. to maybe take one of these clinics here. 
Yeah. Uh, so two things that we have going on. Uh, Velo Girls, which is a women's cycling club. And okay. we primarily are on Meetup now because it's a great marketing tool. So we have a little tiny website these days. We used to have a huge website with routes and everything. And now it's like, okay, what's the goods? Find the calendar. Here it is. Um, so Velo Girls has rides year round, uh, road and dirt and uh, some pretty cool progressive series and a weekly beginner ride that's been going on for about 20 years. Um, Amazing. Nothing. I know. It's probably the most important thing we do. Every time I think, okay, I'm old enough and I've done this long enough and I'm going to retire it. I'm like, I lead the beginner ride and I'm like, no, I can't. We need this. So yeah, it's a good thing. And then Savvy Bike is my coaching business. So I fit bikes and I teach skills clinics and um, which has been a really fun gig. And after 20 years, after being told, you know, early in my career that, oh, how can you be a coach? You weren't a pro. I now get contracted by almost all the other cycling clubs and teams in the area to teach them and teach at corporations. And we have our own clinics. So SavvyBike.com. I and, love it. Uh, and I will yeah. also argue that I think you are a much better coach than most of the pros that I know <laughs> that have switched into coaching businesses. And yeah. that's a that's a topic for maybe the business of fitness podcast. And we can get right. into that. But uh, being a pro does not mean that you are going to be an amazing coach. Being a good think, coach makes you a good coach. <laughs> and I would agree with that. And I think there are people who are good teachers. That's what I, I've taught throughout my career. I taught at Syracuse University. I taught for the Red Cross. I taught for Girl Scouts. I've taught in the corporate sector. And now I teach. And both in the bike fit setting and in the skill setting. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of times people say, well, what does one have to do with the other? And I would argue everything. Right? Everything. So the everything. way that I'm fit on the bike dictates the way that I ride the bike and the way that I learned to ride the bike dictates the way I, the way I ride the bike. So they mm -hmm. definitely go together. And it's been a nice combination for me of doing two different things. So love yeah. it. Oh my gosh, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I love talking about all this stuff. This was yeah, so informative. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you're so fun, Molly, to talk to. I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.